Uh, this morning, you find us in the middle of a series through Mark's Gospel. And so this morning, we'll be in Mark chapter 12. Uh, we'll pick up in verse 18 and read down through verse 34 together. If you have a copy of the Bible, you can turn there with us. If not, it should be on the screen behind me as I read it for our hearing this morning. But in Mark chapter 12, beginning in verse 18, we'll read down through verse 34 together. And the Sadducees came to him who say that there is no resurrection. And they asked him a question saying, Teacher, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies and leaves a wife, but leaves no child, the man must take the widow and raise up offspring for his brother. There were seven brothers. The first took a wife, and when he died, he left no offspring. And the second took her and died, leaving no offspring. And the third likewise, and the seven left no offspring. Last of all, the woman also died. In the resurrection, when they rise again, whose wife will she be? For the seven had her as a wife. And Jesus said to them, it is, is this not the reason you are wrong? Because you know neither the Scriptures nor the power of God. For when they rise from the dead, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. And as for the dead being raised, have you not read in the book of Moses, in the passage about the bush, how God spoke to him, saying, I am the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. He is not God of the dead, but of the living. You are quite wrong. And one of the scribes came up and heard them disputing with one another and seeing that he answered them well, asked him, which commandment is the most important of all? And Jesus answered, the most important is, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. The second is this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these. And the scribe said to him, You are right, teacher. You have truly said that he is one, and there is no other beside him. And to love him with all the heart, and with all the understanding, and with all the strength, and to love one's neighbor as oneself is much more important than all the burnt offerings and sacrifices. And when Jesus saw that he had answered wisely, he said to him, You are not far from the kingdom of God. And after that, no one dared ask him any more questions. This is God's word. Now listen, one of the uh, games that my daughter loves to play, we play some board games, particularly over the holidays and through some of our close contact isolation periods. Uh, but one of the games that we played was Monopoly. Now, we're all very familiar with Monopoly, though very few of us have ever actually finished the game. Okay? Um, it is one of those games that you start and potentially it drags on for days at the kitchen table. And so like you're eating on the floor and wherever you can find space, right? Because no one ever actually finishes that game. But in the game Monopoly, uh, the whole goal is to acquire as much as you possibly can, right? You acquire property and you build houses and then you put hotels and then you collect rent, sometimes massive rent from those who land on your spaces in order to force them to go into bankruptcy, Right? That's the whole premise of the game, right? Is to monopolize the board, to collect as many possessions, to collect as much property as you possibly can in the game. But the one thing that I've noticed is that whether or not you ever actually finish the game and someone bankrupts everyone else after they mortgage all of their properties and they can never buy them back, right? whether someone wins the game or whether you just give up 12 days in, 
right? Eventually, all of that property, all of those icons, all of the cards, all of the things that you acquire, they go back into the box, and that box goes into the hallway closet once more. And church, I want you to know the same is true in life. The same is true in life. Life works that way as well. No matter how much we acquire or accumulate in this life, all of our property, all of our possessions, all of our accolades and achievements, all of our trophies and our plaques, all of our awards and business acumen, it all goes back into the box. And the only thing that endures in this life and the life to come is love. That is all. That's why in 1 Corinthians chapter 13, Paul says that all of our activity, our gifts and our achievements... He says, no matter how eloquent you are or powerful of speech you are, you can persuade anyone of anything. Sell ice to Eskimos and sand to Arabs, right? You can do that with your powers of persuasion, but you have not love. He says, you're like a child in their bedroom trying to learn how to play an instrument, okay? You're a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. He says, no matter how discerning and perceptive you are and the deep gift of faith you may have to believe God for great things so that mountains are moved and amazing things are accomplished. And he says, but you have not love. You are nothing, he says. And then he goes forward even from there to say that no matter the depth and breadth of your sacrifice, you can give away everything that you have, surrender your body, he says, to the flames and yield your, the very life from your lungs and you do it all without love. And he says you gain absolutely nothing. And at the end of the chapter, Paul says that love, he says is the greatest of the virtues of faith and hope because faith one day will be made sight as the object of our faith, Jesus will appear before our eyes and we will see not just but in a mirror dimly, but face to face the full reality of Christ. And our hope, the things that we long for, the eager expectations that we have in this life, they will one day be fully fulfilled, fully realized. Everything that we've hoped for will come to pass in Christ. He says, but love is the greatest of these. Why? Because while our faith will be made sight and our hope will be realized, love will endure forever. Forever. See, many of us think that our legacy will be marked by how much we've made or bought or even given away. Right? We think that our legacy will be marked by who or what we knew. Right? All of our intelligence, our IQ, right? all of our intellectual acumen and theological precision or we think by who we knew, the celebrities that we knew, and the names that we can drop, that our legacy will be marked by those things. We think that our legacy will be marked by what we've achieved or accomplished, or will be marked by what we leave behind us in our children. But listen, all of us know enough children who were raised in homes devoid of love to know that the legacy left behind there is not a God-honoring one. We think our legacy will be all these things, but according to Scripture, the only thing that will define our legacy is the degree to which any of the things that we did in this life was moved and motivated and prompted by love. That's all that will matter at the end of the day. And this is why when Jesus is asked a question about the commandment to which all humanity will be held accountable, the commandment which is the greatest, the commandment which is the most important, what does He respond with? Love. Love. 
So I want to take us through this text this morning from top to bottom. We're not going to start where we started reading. We're going to start at the bottom where we finished reading. We go from top to bottom this morning. And as we walk through this text together, I want us to consider what is needed to leave a lasting, God-honoring, Christ-exalting, Spirit-empowered legacy for the generation that comes behind us, for those who would follow in our footsteps. And a legacy that will not only endure in this life, but in the life that is to come. Okay, so that's where we're headed. How do we leave that kind of mark? And Jesus says, if we're going to leave that kind of legacy, we must lead a life marked by love. Lead a life marked by love. Now, in the second paragraph of the text we read this morning, Jesus has an encounter with these individuals called the scribes. The scribes were those in Old Testament Jewish religious systems who were experts in the law. Okay, Jesus has already had an encounter with the Pharisees. Then he had an encounter with the Sadducees. We'll see in this text this morning. And now he's had an encounter with the scribes, the three groups that made up what was known in Jesus' day as the Sanhedrin, the religious high council of the Jewish people. And so he's had an encounter with the scribes, and the scribes were, prided themselves on the proper exposition of the law. So they understood it and could explain it really well and apply it in particular situations. So they'd earn themselves a reputation as authorities in the interpretation of the law. And those in Jesus' day, they had counted through the Torah, through the Old Testament, 613 commandments. Right? Hang your hat on that. 613 commandments. There were 365 prohibitions, things that God had set out of bounds and said you ought not to. And then there were 248 prescriptions, things that God had said you should walk in and actually engage and do. And among all of those different commands, the rabbis in Jesus' day, they debated with each other. The teachers in Jesus' day went back and forth on the things that were the heavy commands and the things that were the light commands. Now the heavy ones concerned life's uncompromising essentials, the things that were most central to life and godliness, while the light ones were, were made less of a demand on our will, on our resources. Right, so they debated which ones were the heavy, which ones were the light ones. And as a result, the heavy ones were seen with greater degrees of seriousness when broken, and they brought about more severe penalties and required greater sacrifices to be brought in the temple. In fact, in Matthew chapter 5, verse 19, Jesus adopts this kind of language when speaking of the commandments when he speaks of a child breaking or of an individual breaking one of the least of these commandments, one of the lightest of these commandments. Now, in Jesus' day, it was common practice to ask rabbis or teachers to weigh in on the weightiest. What's the most essential one, Jesus? What's the heaviest one, Jesus? And those, which one lays claim on all people in all places for all time? This is exactly what the scribe does here with Jesus. He asked him to weigh in on this debate. And so, in fact, the way that the scribe asked Jesus this question is pretty interesting. He didn't just say, what's the most important, or what's the greatest, or what's the heaviest? He says, Jesus... Essentially, what is the, the commandment that lays claim upon every human being who has, does now, or ever will live? Lays claim on all of them, including the Gentiles, not just the Jews. And in response, Jesus quotes from Deuteronomy 6, verses 4 to 5, the Shema. And then again from Leviticus 19.18, where it speaks of loving our neighbor as ourselves. Deuteronomy chapter 6 speaks of loving God with our heart, soul, mind, and strength and the uniqueness of God. There is no other and none like Him. He is one and only. And then in verse 30, Jesus lays out this, this, the uniqueness of God that there is 
him and no other. Then he lays out these commands that lay claim on all humanity. And this is what he says. A life marked by love is one that loves God supremely and loves others genuinely. It loves God supremely and loves others genuinely. Listen, let's, let's take a look at that first one first. Loves God supremely. See, the repetition of the word all occurs four times in Mark 12.30. It emphasizes this comprehensive nature of how God deserves, desires, and demands to be loved by His people. It calls for a total response of love and devotion of God. In fact, one commentator said it this way. He said, it doesn't take much of a man to be a believer, but it takes all there is of him. Every facet, every aspect of life. The heart speaks to the center of our being, our, the emotional seat, the, 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 what drives our actions and affections. The soul speaks to the spirit of the life of self-consciousness, the awareness of where you are and what you are doing. Our strength speaks to our bodily powers, perhaps even our will, and the mind speaks to our intelligence and our thought life. Now, there's some overlap in these categories, but Jesus essentially is saying it is an all-encompassing, all-inclusive kind of love. In other words, everything is pushed to the center of the table. All your chips are riding on love for God. That everything gets pushed there. Sinclair Ferguson, another commentator, said this. He said, God's never satisfied with anything less than the whole devotion of our whole life for the whole duration of our days. Everything that we are, everything that we have for as long as we live. To love God supremely. So what does it look like to do that? What does it look like to love God with all of our faculties? Let me give you several maybe benchmark questions you can ask yourself as you analyze or evaluate where you are in loving God supremely. First of all, is the Lord my all-consuming passion in life? In other words, does it consume my thoughts? Does it consume my desires? Does it consume my affections, my actions, my will? Do I have a deep, intense, and abiding love for Him? Right? Not just do I give lip service to a particular creed or some commands or a moral way of living, but do I actually have a heart that burns with affection for God? Am I loyal to God with an exclusive love? In other words, I'm not cheating on Him with another. I'm not running around behind His back. Okay, I don't, on Sunday mornings, push my, my, my religious activity to the center of the table, but then on Monday mornings, push all my business activity to the center of the table and say, that's what my life is really about. Do I resist and even oppose anyone or anything that seeks to undermine Him? Am I zealous to defend Him with grace and honor His name in the midst of conversations in which people want to push back on the exclusivity of God Right? Or they want to push back on the identity of God or the fact that there are many gods. Or they try to bring all kinds of arguments to the table. Do I defend His name and honor? Do I enjoy spending time with Him? One of the ways to de- de- demonstrate the, or really get a, a, a benchmark on whether or not you love someone is by the fact that you enjoy being with them. It delights you to be with them. Do I do things or aim to do things that please Him? Do I brag about Him? Right? When you love something, what do you do? You boast about it, don't you? You brag about it. Right? Whenever you love the fish, by the way, it's getting real close. Right? Whenever you love the fish, right? you talk about it with others who love to fish. Right? Whenever you love to, I don't know, uh, exercise, you talk about it with people who love to exercise. When you love to shop, 
You talk about what great deals you got and how everyone else should go get those deals as well. When you love food and you savor every bite, you talk about it and brag about the restaurant that you just found that nobody else has found yet, and they should go check it out too because you want them to delight in the same kind of enjoyment that you've delighted in. <coughs> That's what love does. It boasts, it brags about the object of its affection. Do I tell God that I love Him? Do I talk with Him as much as I possibly can in the windows and moments of my day. All of these things are wrapped up in loving God supremely. Second of all, Jesus says, not only do you love God supremely, but you love others (coughs) genuinely. Love others genuinely. Now, Jesus shows us that love actually defines a, a lawful life. And he shows us that the law actually defines the loving life. You can't have one without the other. Okay? You can't have the law without love or love without the law. When Jesus boils down the law, he boils it down to love God and love neighbor. And Tim Keller said it this way. He said, he is saying we have not fulfilled a law by simply avoiding what the law prohibits. In other words, I can avoid all the things that God tells me not to do. But he goes on to say, but we must also do and be what the law is really after, namely love. That's what the law is after. It's not after our rote obedience or rigid compliance. So to see what it means to love others genuinely. Listen, I want to encourage you, when Jesus quotes Leviticus 19.18, go back this week and read Leviticus 19. I don't have time to read you the whole chapter this morning, but go back and read it. I want you to consider some of the things that rise off the page in the context of when Jesus cites this passage in the Old Testament that speaks of loving neighbor as self. These are some of the things that surround that command. In Leviticus chapter 19, verse 10, that to love your neighbor shows, means that you show that love, loving your neighbor means that you, that you will care for the poor. And, and 19.10 talks about gleaning which was a practice in the Old Testament where they left a portion of their crops and a portion of their fields for the poor and for the sojourner and for the stranger. In other words, they didn't maximize profits on everything that they could, but they left some over for those who were in need. It also involves in 1911 not stealing and not lying. In 1914 being fair in business dealings. In 1914 also caring for those who are impaired in some capacity. They're deaf or they're blind. It also involves in verse, chapter 19 verse 15 dealing justly with every person. In 1916 avoiding slander and running others down with our words with malicious intent and an aim to harm. It means not jeopardizing the life of your neighbor in 1916. In 1917, not harboring hatred against your brother. In 1917, rebuking your neighbor at times when necessary for his good and for your good. And then in 1918, not to take revenge or bear a grudge against others. See, when God says love your neighbor as yourself in Leviticus 19, He doesn't leave it to our imaginations to conceive for ourselves what we believe that should look like. He actually spells it out in the context of that very command. He says, here's what it looks like to love your neighbor. Now, I want you to recognize before we move on that these two commands that Jesus gives, they are inseparable. They are inseparable. And here's why. Because one without the other, okay? Consider this, one without the other. To love God without expressing love for others is just mysticism. Okay? It's just this kind of abstract idea of the fact that I love God. But to love others without loving God is humanism. It 
removes God from the equation and says, all that really matters is how I treat my fellow man regardless of how I, my disposition towards God. These two things are inseparable. That's why Jesus binds them together. And notice the order of the commands. Jesus first says, love God supremely, then love others genuinely. You can't flip that around. And here's, let me tell you why. Right? The order is so important because until you first love God, you will not be able to love your neighbor as yourself. Let me tell you why. Because if you're going to love your neighbor genuinely without loving God supremely, listen, here's what happens. You don't actually then love your neighbor. What you do is you use your neighbor. You don't love them. You use them. If God is not supreme in our affections and in our heart, then you won't love them, but you'll use them. You might do good things for your neighbor. Right? You'll bring them a meal. You'll cut their grass. You'll spread a little bit of your fertilizer on their lawn when you've got a little bit of leftover. Right? You do all these kinds of good things for your neighbor. You'll care for them. But you will not do it from a place of loving God. It's not an expression of love for God. And listen, the Bible is very clear that the vacuum of the human heart as a result of the fall is that our loves have turned in on themselves and we've become self-preoccupied with our own selfishness and self-centeredness. That's what happens when the heart turns in on itself. It begins to see everything through the lens of how will this benefit me? And so without loving God supremely, if you try to move out and love your neighbor, you're going to be doing so from a place and a motive that is nothing but selfish. Because if you do something nice for them today, they'll do something nice for you tomorrow. And you're banking on that. Right? You're making a deposit, you're making an investment, you're hoping for a return. That whenever you're going to meet their needs, so that whenever you're in need, they will come meet yours. That's what selfishness does to the human heart and our motives. You will serve them, but hoping that somewhere down the road they're going to reciprocate that service. You're not loving them, you're just using them if that's the case. That's why Jesus gives us the order. Love God supremely. Love others genuinely. You cannot flip those around and you cannot pull them apart. So listen, church, if, if we're going to leave a legacy here on earth, it doesn't matter what you accomplish. It doesn't matter what you achieve. It doesn't matter what awards you receive in the athletic realm, in the business realm, in the academic realm. What matters is was the actions that I took motivated and prompted out of love for God and love for others? Was I loving God supremely and loving others genuinely in the way that I conducted life? So the burden that's here that Jesus lays upon every human being, listen, I want to be very clear with you this morning. The burden that He lays on all of us is not theological precision. It is not doctrinal Clarity. It is not religious devotion or financial contribution. As if you could just line up all the points of theology and all the points of doctrine and agree with those and defend those and affirm those and argue those to prove your points. That is not what matters most, Jesus says. It's also not religious devotion. You can't show up to this place enough. You can't go through this trough enough. 
right? You can't give enough in an offering box or an online giving portal through financial contribution in order to put God at your debt and think that somehow He's going to be appeased by all the things that you've done and all the arguments that you've won. It's not large and impressive ministries or big businesses that you grow through success and big accounts that you have for retirement. Those are not impressive to God at all. It's not rigid rule keeping and moral living. That is not the burden that he lays upon everyone. The burden that he lays upon everyone, Jesus says, is love. Which is the expression of every commandment. All 613. That's the burden that he lays. The sum total of our responsibility before God is an encapsulating love of himself and an encompassing love of others. And listen, that's what will leave a lasting legacy. Now, it will leave a lasting legacy not only in this life, but in the life that is to come. Okay? So we see this, that only love lasts forever. It's the command that's laid on all of us and that you can't love God without loving your neighbor. We see all of these things, right? So what's the problem? Well, I've got a lot of them. I don't know about you, right? But our biggest problem is the fact that our loves, according to St. Augustine, that they're disordered. They're in the wrong places and wrong positions in life. In other words, the things that we should love supremely we love minimally. And the things that we should love minimally, we love supremely. There's a disordering of our loves. We love too much the things that we should love little and too little the things that we should love much. So how do we go about reordering them? How do we go about reordering them? And that brings us to the second portion of our text this morning. And a part of it is recognizing that whatever we do in this life that is not prompted by love will be burned up at the day of judgment. Whatever we do in this life that is motivated and moved by love will carry through into eternity. And so if we're going to reorder our loves so that we love rightly the things that we should love supremely and we love rightly the things that we should love genuinely and we love rightly the things that we should love minimally, then we must learn to rejoice in the reality and the intimacy of the resurrection. Look at the text with me again. The Sadducees, they're challenging Jesus here. And listen to what, listen, listen the Sadducees in their day were like theological conservatives. Okay? They were. The Pharisees, on the other hand, were like theological progressives. Alright? The Sadducees affirmed human free will alone and the Pharisees believed in divine sovereignty. The Pharisees believed in angels and demons, while the Sadducees didn't. The Sadducees accepted only the Pentateuch as authoritative. In other words, the first five books of the Old Testament. It's the only thing they accepted as authoritative. While the Pharisees accepted those five books along with the writings, Psalms and Proverbs and Ecclesiastes and the prophets along with the oral tradition that had been passed down. Finally, the Pharisees, they believed in the resurrection of the dead, while the Sadducees did not because they couldn't find it based upon their estimation in those first five books. So whatever they couldn't find in the book, they didn't believe. Which is a good rule of thumb for our day as well, by the way. Okay? But because they couldn't find it in those five books, they didn't believe that the resurrection was going to be a reality. Right? Now, while they were theologically conservative, they were part of the social elites of their day. And they were politically aligned with Rome. And so what they do whenever they come to Jesus, listen, is they pose him a hypothetical question. 
based upon something they didn't even believe was real. <laughs> okay? About the resurrection. So you, you see, they're, they're, they're not honestly looking for dialogue and discourse with Jesus. They're still just trying to trap him. And the question they posed had to do with the scenario of the Old Testament law of leveret marriage. Let me kind of break that down for you, what that was. In the Old Testament, listen, widows were supposed to be a protected class within Jewish society. In fact, you see it all over the Old Testament. Exodus 22, you shall not mistreat any widow or fatherless child. Zechariah 7, do not oppress the widow, the fatherless, the sojourner, or the poor, and let none of you devise evil against another in their heart. Deuteronomy 24, when you reap your harvest in your field and forget a sheaf in the field, you shall not go back to get it. It shall be for the sojourner, the fatherless, and the widow, that the Lord your God may bless you in the work of your hands. Deuteronomy 10, He, God, executes justice for the fatherless and the widow. He loves the sojourner, giving him food and clothing. Psalm 68 says God is the father of the fatherless and a protector of widows. They were a protected class in the Old Testament, and here's why. Because the right to improperty and the right to inheritance in the Old Testament was patrilineal. What that means is it got passed down through the eldest male child in the family. And so if a woman was married and then her husband died without leaving a male offspring, the property and possessions would default back to his brother and she was alone. And so what God had done is he built in a provision for that circumstance and said, if that happens, he says, in this case, his brother, according to Deuteronomy 25, would be obligated to take his brother's widow and raise up an heir in his brother's name to establish his deceased brother's property inheritance within the family line. Now, this was different than polygamy, and it was different than concubinage, because it was never the intent for the man to have more than one wife. It was a custom that God had put in place for the protection of these widows so that property and possessions, they would have a a, a descendant to care for them as they aged, to be a part of their family, to be protected and provided for. And this is the scenario the Sadducees set up. They said, Jesus, so listen, man, if God, God gets married, dies, doesn't leave an offspring, an heir, to take on his responsibilities, he marries the brother, or she marries the brother, and he can't provide an offspring, so she marries the third brother, and he can't provide an offspring, so the fourth, and the fifth, and the sixth, and the seventh, Jesus. What happens in the resurrection? Which, by the way, we don't even really believe in. And notice how Jesus responds. He responds by talking to them about the reality of the resurrection and the intimacy of the resurrection. Let's take a look at the reality first. In verse 24, Jesus begins his rebuttal of the Sadducees with these words. Jesus said to them, Is this not the reason you are wrong? Because you know neither the Scriptures nor the power of God. In other words, you don't understand what has been revealed already about the resurrection in the Old Testament. Right? Nor do you understand the power of God that He is able to take those who are dead and bring them to life. He's able to overcome even death. And then on verses 26 and 27, Jesus says, And as for the dead being raised, have you not read in the book of Moses, in the passage about the bush, how God spoke to him, saying, I am the God of Abraham, and the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. He's not the God of the dead, but of the living. You, sirs, are quite wrong. The sirs wasn't in the text. Okay, that was my emphasis. 
Uh, but you're quite wrong. In other words, Jesus, listen, I love it. He takes them back to the very books they affirmed as being authoritative. And he says, let me show it to you. He says, whenever Moses is there, God is speaking to him through the bush. He proclaims himself to be the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He doesn't say, I was, whenever they were alive. He says, I am, presupposing that they're still alive. That though they have died, they are still alive. There's a part of them that has continued and moved forward. He lets them know that Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob are not dead, but they are alive. He affirms the reality of the resurrection. He says, you don't know the Scriptures. You haven't searched them long enough. You haven't searched them well enough. You don't understand them clearly. Let me shed light on them. Nor do you understand that there is nothing that limits my capacities or powers other than my character and nature. Not your understanding of what's possible or of what's real. He speaks to them of the reality of the resurrection, that it's actually going to take place. But second of all, he speaks to them of the intimacy of the resurrection. That was good, but this is where it gets even better. The intimacy of the resurrection. In verse 25, Jesus tells us there will be a certain degree of continuity between pre-resurrection life and post-resurrection life. But there'll be a certain degree of discontinuity as well. Continuity, discontinuity. Some things are going to be the same, some things are going to be different. Look at, the, look at what he says. He says, For when they rise from the dead, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but they are like the angels in heaven. Notice what Jesus doesn't say. What doesn't he say? He doesn't say there will be no recognized existing marriages in heaven. What he says is, is very particular because he uses two words that describe the gender roles of men and the gender roles of women in ancient Jewish civilization when it came to the process of pursuing marriage. You had men who married, took the initiative, pursued a wife or a woman, or you had fathers who pursued that for their sons. Right Through Eastern traditions of arranged marriages. But the men took the initiative to pursue. The women were given by their fathers or by older family members in marriage. What Jesus is talking about here is the pursuit of marriage in the resurrection. He's saying there are not going to be any new marriages that take place in the resurrection. So in the particular case of leveret marriage where this brother dies, I love it. Jesus is just like unfolding their argument right before their eyes. He says there's not going to be any more death in the resurrection. There's not going to be any more need for leveret marriage. The scenario you're proposing is obsolete. Yet marriages will be recognized, but there will be no new ones that will be pursued. It would no longer be necessary because death will be no more. They will be like the angels in heaven who are not able to die. But I believe there is one more way that will be like the angels in heaven. For those of us who experience the resurrection in Christ, and it's this, church, here's where it gets beautiful. It's not that we'll become genderless creatures. Right? Where we're no longer male, we're no longer female, like being created in God's image, and that capacity just goes away whenever we're resurrected. That's not what he's talking about. Rather, our pursuits and our preoccupations will be changed. They will be changed, including marrying and giving given in marriage. And we'll be like the angels who spend 24 hours a day, seven days a week, 
52 weeks a year, 365 days a year, year after year, decade after decade, century after century, until infinitude. That's hard to imagine, isn't it? All the way out there, engrossed with the beauty and the majesty and the brilliance of God. That's what will be our pursuit. That's what will be our preoccupation in heaven. That's what will fill our every longing of every heart. Jesus says, listen, you don't need marriage anymore in the resurrection because everything that marriage gives you here on earth will be fulfilled in God Himself. All the intimacy that you enjoy in the context of marriage here pales in comparison to the intimacy that you will enjoy with God there. Listen, and I don't, in no way, shape, or form, do I want to diminish the sacredness and value of marriage in this life. But I want to tell you something. In relation to the resurrection life, marriage is like a set of training wheels. Right? Both of my kids, neither one of my kids rode balance bikes. Okay? You know those things you can buy now at the store where there's just a little low to the ground. They put that, look like Fred Flintstone, right? Pedaling along. Right? Neither one of them rode balance bikes. But both of them rode bikes whenever they were children with a set of training wheels on the back, right? To keep them from leaning too far one side or the other. Okay? And so I could keep them upright until they could ride on their own. Right? Now I can remember the day, right, unscrewing the nuts and bolts and taking off the training wheels and seeing them go whoop, whoop, right, just crashing and burning. So I'm running alongside of them in the field, in the grass, so they don't scrape themselves up, right, running alongside. Okay, keep your balance, keep your balance, pedal, 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 and eventually they can ride on their own. Listen, church, marriage is like that set of training wheels in our lives now because all the closeness, all of the intimacy, all of the rapture that you enjoy in physical intimacy will one day be filled and full of intimacy and closeness and rapture as you're encapsulated and encompassed in the love of God and rejoicing in His beauty, majesty, and glory forever. So you won't need to pursue marriage because everything marriage gives you here, He will provide there. There's an intimacy to the resurrection that we're waiting for. And a part of what that means, listen, and here's where it ties back into a legacy of love. Is if you want to reorder your loves, you have to recognize, church, that every human, every earthly, every temporal, here and now, pleasure and enjoyment is but a shadow of the reality that will be ours in the resurrection. Every one of them. You want to reorder your loves? Radiate your heart with that truth. That everything you enjoy here is but a shadow of the greatness that will be there. C.S. Lewis says it this way. He says, He will make the feeblest and filthiest of us into dazzling, radiant, immortal creatures pulsating all through with such energy, joy, wisdom, and love as we cannot now imagine. A bright, stainless mirror that reflects back to God, though of course on a smaller scale, His own boundless power and delight and goodness. That is what we are in for, nothing less. What does that mean? I don't know, but it sounds amazing. Right? There's only so much we can know about what life will be like there. 
Jonathan Edwards goes on to say, In heaven, the glorified spiritual bodies of the saints shall be filled with pleasures of the most exquisite kind that such refined bodies are capable of. In other words, you think you're capable of pleasure here? You don't even know what capacities or capabilities you will have there that will be so, like, like it'd be sensory overload here to get even a, a taste of what things will be like there. He says, the sweetness and pleasure that shall be in the mind shall put the spirits of the body into such a motion as shall cause a sweet sensation throughout the body, infinitely excelling any sensual pleasures here. The reality and the intimacy of the resurrection, it changes what you're chasing, church. It changes what you're chasing. It means your best life now is not here. But it will be there. It means, listen, those of you who like to travel, I like to travel too, but those little huts out over the water in Fiji and Tahiti that you dream of visiting one day, that your eternal abode, the place that's being prepared for you right now as Jesus has been resurrected and is seated at the right hand of the Father, it will blow your mind compared to that little hut out over that crystal clear water with the plexiglass underneath so you can see all the fish. Blow your mind. It means that the best savory or sweet taste of fine foods is but a dim shadow of the hunger-satisfying supper that we will enjoy with the Lamb at His marriage supper. Listen, the best steak you can imagine, right? You cut into it, bleeds. I mean, I, I mean that's what I like. Bleed, just a little bit of red runs out, right? Warm red center. You put that on your palate and it just melts like in your mouth. That there is nothing, no taste on this earth that will compare to the capacities of your taste buds in heaven to enjoy God forever. This means that the comfort you receive from the best relationships, the best friendships, the best of the marriages that exist on this earth, the greatest degrees of intimacy and comfort. It means they're nothing compared to the depth of friendship with God in the resurrection. Of knowing and being known fully. He fully knows you already, but one day you will fully know Him in all of His majesty. This means there's no amount of joy that you derive from being in what C.S. Lewis called the inner ring, right? That circle of popularity and of name dropping of people that you know that boost your social status. He says there's no amount of that that can compare to being in the inner ring of a heaven and enjoying God forever. The reality and the intimacy of the resurrection, it changes what you are chasing it begins to reorder your loves so that what you should love greatly, you love greatly. What you should love genuinely, you love genuinely. What you should love supremely, you love supremely. And what you should love minimally and hold on to lightly, you do so. Because everything that is done out of supreme love for God and genuine love for neighbor, you know what? It carries forward like an ever-building tidal wave of joy that will crest and crash one day in eternity and build again and build again and build again as eternity carries forward through all 
of human history and beyond. That's what will reorder your loves. But it only reorders the loves, listen, of those who know that in the resurrection, something's good's coming for them. Because the truth of the scriptures, and I'll close with this, is this reality. For every single one of us in this room, you will be raised. But perhaps not for every single one of us in this room, will you be raised? Will you be raised to everlasting joy? See, Jesus says to the scribe at the end of the passage, he says this, when the scribe says, Jesus, you've responded rightly. You've responded well to my question, Jesus, to my challenge. You should love God with everything. Love your neighbor as yourself. And he says, this is better than all offerings, than all sacrifices. And he taps into a very prominent Old Testament theme that to obey is better than sacrifice. To love is better than all of your ritual bringings to God. And what he's saying is this, is that there's no amount of what I can do to pile up favor and curry merit with God so that He would look upon all that I've done. God, I went to VBS as a kid. God, I went to youth camp. God, I was involved in the Baptist Collegiate Ministries in college, or I was involved in Young Life, or God, I participated in Campus Crusade, or God, when I got married, we got into a church, we sent our kids to Sunday school, God, we taught Sunday school, we served in their class. All of those things cannot pile up. There's nothing that you can bring. And Jesus says, you know what? You're not far from the kingdom. Not far, and what he means by this is not that you need to work a little bit harder, go a little bit further, do a little bit more. What he says is you're beginning to get it. Have you gotten it? Everyone's going to be raised. Some to everlasting joy and some to everlasting condemnation. Only those who have come to groups with the fact that there's no amount of offerings and sacrifices they can bring, no amount of good deeds that they can do, but only throwing themselves upon the mercy of God in Jesus Christ, turning from sin, trusting in Him, receiving a gift that you could never earn or deserve is the only way that those who will be raised will be raised to everlasting joy. And as you radiate your heart with the truth, of the intimacy of the resurrection, that you will be united to the one who has saved you forever. In fact, Paul says in Romans, that there's nothing in this life that can separate you from him. Even now. But then and there, it's like the, the, the top will be blown off. You want to be able to fathom now what you'll experience then. And that begins to change what you're chasing today. So you'd love your neighbor. You care for the poor. You will not slander those who are around you or among you. You will not lie or steal or cheat anyone. You be honest in all of your business dealings and practices. You do all those things Leviticus 19 talks about out of deep abiding love for God. Because He's seen fit to save you. Why don't you pray with me? Father, this morning we acknowledge that everything 
that we achieve in this life will go back in the box if it's not prompted by or motivated by love. And Father, where our loves are disordered, may you reorder them. Where our loves are not right, where they are wrong, would you make them right? Father, help us to radiate our hearts and our lives and our minds with the truth. of the resurrection. And Father, I pray that that would change what we are chasing in this life. For my brothers and sisters in Christ, I pray that it would change what they're chasing. For myself, I pray it would change what I'm chasing. And Father, for those who do not know you, who have never crossed the line of faith, to whom Jesus would say, you are far from the kingdom. God, would you be gracious to open eyes? Would you be gracious to open ears? Would you be gracious to soften hearts? That they might see and hear and know and understand and respond to your grace. Knowing there's nothing they can bring to you. But you've brought the only sacrifice. You've made the only offering through your son that is able to save. Father, as we leave this place today, may we go forth loving you supremely and loving others genuinely because only that which is done from love will last. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.